We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Romans chapter 4, please. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin are, are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised always? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he might become, so that, I'm sorry, that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, 
but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was written for his sake, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. First Timothy chapter 1. We will just pick up where we left off last time in First Timothy chapter 1. I was thinking last week and both this week, uh, some of what Drew just read uh, really uh, is united with what we're learning about in First Timothy. And uh, in one sense, you could say, oh, it's coincidence or providence. At the same time, really, it shouldn't be that surprising because all of Scripture accords with itself. So it shouldn't be surprising that the things we hear in Romans is repeated or implied in Timothy and so forth and so on. And I think that should uh, give us much confidence in God's word that it uh, is, is one voice, it is unified, it does not contradict itself, and uh, what a wonderful thing that is. First Timothy chapter 1, though, is where we'll be this evening. That was just for free, a thought I had while sitting there listening. But First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 is where we'll be this evening. I'll read those verses for us now, and then I just want to make a few connections uh, to where we've been in the text in the first uh, 11 verses. But beginning in verse 12, Paul writes this to Timothy, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You might now see why I chose that hymn, hymn number 10. We see this doxological uh, refrain in verse 17, and we'll, we'll speak uh, about that momentarily. But let us go to the, word, or to the Lord in prayer first before we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we look into your word, may you instruct us by your spirit. May uh, you allow us to understand clearly what you have for us to understand as you had Timothy to understand uh, as the first recipient of this letter. And Lord, now we are blessed to have it as your word given by you, as we learned this morning from our brother Alex, and uh, what a wonderful miracle that is, still speaking truth to this day, Lord. Your, we know your word does not return void. It cannot fail, and it continues to, to teach and to instruct, and may you do that through your word this evening in the moments ahead. In Christ's name, amen. Now, verses 12 to 17 constitute uh, what I would see as the third kind of subsection in a larger unit 
that includes verses 3 through 20. We've looked at two of those sections first. I'm not really including the greeting. That's kind of its own unit. But in verses 3 to 20, we see kind of three sections or subsections. In the first section, Paul presents the basic facts of the problem and charges Timothy to stop the false teachers. We see this in verses 3 to 7. Paul then discusses the actual problem in verses 8 to 11, and we looked at that last time. The problem is is the false teachers were misusing the law, the Mosaic law, that is, and applying it in ways that were not according to its intended purpose. And Paul instructs them about this, corrects them, saying, the law is good, lest anyone say I'm an antinomian. The law is good, Paul says, but only if it's used in a in its proper way, in its intended way. Paul then says in verse 9 that the law is not made for the righteous person or the person who has been made righteous through Christ. Rather, it's for the lawless and insubordinate kind of person and so on and so forth. And he gives you know, the kinds of people it's, it's for. Although it's not an exhaustive list, we know this because at the end of uh, verse 10 he says, and for anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine, you know, fill in the blank. These are just some examples. And we said last time that the law does this. Uh, uh, it did have a, a means, it was a means of regulating the people of Israel in the Old Testament, although that is no longer the case anymore. But it also does this. It reveals the sin of humanity. It reveals in, the per, in a person the extent of his sin and also the kinds of behaviors that are uh, that are called out as sin. It reveals sin in, in the unbeliever. And we said that it can be, we can use that helpfully in our evangelism to, to point out the sin in, in, in the unbeliever by pointing them to uh, the high stakes, the high demands of the law, and how no man is able to fulfill the law per- perfectly. It can only really condemn a person. And it also uh, functions to reveal the holy nature of God the perfect holy nature of God in contrast to the unholy, uh, sinful nature of mankind. So Paul addresses this misuse of the law. We don't exactly know how they were misusing it. Paul doesn't give us those details. He knew, Timothy knew, uh, and so he left it at that. Perhaps they were using the law to say that uh, we are only saved by the law. You know, we need to do the works of the law in order to be justified. Perhaps they were saying that the law is a means of sanctification once saved. Um, that is incorrect as well. Galatians talks about this, and we, we mentioned that before. Um, but we don't know which is the case. Maybe it was the first. Maybe it's the latter. Maybe it's a combination of both. Uh, they were misapplying it in both, both ways. Either way, um, whether it be that case then or now, both means of the law, both uses of that, you know, the law in that way today are improper. We are not justified or saved by the law, neither are we sanctified by the law. But we can use it to reveal sin in others and help point them to Christ. And in some ways, and Pastor and I were talking about this, it can also uh, function to reveal sin in ourselves today. You know, we, we recognize when we look at the, at the law, although we're not under the law, we can see that our character at times uh, is, not, uh, is not holy, is, is sinful, 
and uh, we, we can see through that that we, we need um, to cleanse ourselves, to confess our sin, and uh, be cleansed from it. In verses 12 to 17, then, Paul um, clarifies through his personal testimony the true nature of salvation. Oh, let me um, let me backtrack just a moment and say this. In the final subsection here in verses 12 to 17, Paul will use here his own testimony of conversion and also his kind of commissioning into ministry to contend that salvation is not through the law, but through the grace and mercy of God. This stands in contrast to the false teaching, which, as I said, either affirmed that salvation is through the works of the law or one's sanctification is through the adherence to the law, and both uses are incorrect. And so in verses 12 to 17, Paul's going to use his own personal testimony to clarify the true nature of salvation, and that's in verses 12 to 14. And then Paul is going to explain God's purpose in saving him. We'll see this in verses 15 to 16. And finally ends with a doxology, exemplifying the kind of proper response that a believer should have to the mercy and grace of God, which he has experienced in his life. And the truth that we find here in the text this evening, verses 12 to 17, is this, the overarching truth. If God can save the worst of sinners and enable him for service, he can save and enable you too. If God can save the worst of sinners and enable him for service, like Paul, he can save and enable you for service too. As I was reading the text and studying over it, I thought it interesting that you know, we, we use our testimony. It can be a very impactful thing to use our testimony to help point others to Christ, uh, along with you know, bringing up Scripture and uh, showing them from Scripture how we were saved. And we often do that, and it's a wonderful tool that we can use in evangelism. Uh, but I found it interesting that Paul isn't necessarily just doing this to point others to Christ. He's using his testimony as as in an instructive way to point out the error in the, 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 the uh, incorrect doctrine that was existing in the church. And I thought that kind of interesting, you know, that he would use his personal testimony as a means of instruction to point them back to Christ, not necessarily point them toward Christ in a saving way, although I'm sure there were some in the church that needed saved, but pointing them back to what was true, clarifying to them the true nature of salvation. Now, in verses 12 to 14, as I say, Paul uses his testimony to clarify this true nature of salvation and he begins with expressing uh, thanksgiving directed toward Christ Jesus for the work that he had done, that Christ had done in his own life. Paul says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Before Paul's conversion, 
We know he was a Pharisee, and he strictly followed the law. He was rigorous about it, seeking to obey its demands and its prohibitions and commands. However, Paul, in this situation, uh, describes himself formally not as a, as a rigorous teacher of the law or a follower of the law, but he describes himself formally as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a, a, uh, a violent aggressor, an insolent man, one who was arrogant, violent in his aggression towards, as we know, the church and believers. I just want to give a few thoughts about these kind of descripting word, describing words about himself, these titles as he, as he describes himself in verse 13. A blasphemer is one who defames and denigrates God. You know, Paul thought he was honoring God, Acts 26.9, by his zeal for the law, by persecuting even the Christians. But he was really blaspheming Christ both through what he said concerning the Christians and both through his actions. By persecuting the Christians, by persecuting the believers, he was persecuting and blaspheming Christ, his name. Paul calls himself also a persecutor. He imprisoned Christians and caused their deaths. Acts chapter 8 tells us this. Let me read that for you. You're well aware of his actions. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says now it says this. This is right uh, just after uh, Stephen is put to death. In chapter 8, it says in verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that's, that is Stephen's death. Uh, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts chapter 9, verse 2 says this about Paul and his former life, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against, all the, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then in uh, chapter 26, verse 10, it says this. Um, I'm in the wrong chapter there, 26, let me get there, 26, uh, 10, uh, beginning in verse 9, indeed I, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul, in our opinion, and in his own opinion, was a very violent aggressor, very 
adamant about persecuting the Christians, even, even pursuing them outside of Jerusalem. You know, as they fled, he pursued after them. In other instances in Scripture, uh, Paul's testimony consisted, consisted of him testifying of the zeal that he had for God, expressed through his strict adherence to the law. Of course, uh, he was misguided in his zeal. Uh, it was misappropriated, misaligned. Uh, Paul states in Philippians chapter 3, 7 to 9, that none of his righteousness derived from his ad- strict adherence to the law. And uh, let me read that for you in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this concerning his former life and uh, the things that he did. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Uh, Let me back up just a a few verses. He says this, Though I, in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But then Paul says this about all of that. What things, uh, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness from the law, we could say, which is from the law, he says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is clear in these passages, and even in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we'll see, that his former life, zeal for the law, persecuting the church, all of these things uh, uh, gave him no righteousness, In fact, it only further condemned him as a sinner, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Now, as Paul reflects upon his former life, he testifies that all that he did was done done ignorantly in unbelief. He says this at the end of of, uh, verse 13. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, But he says, but I obtained mercy. Why? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul is not claiming that he is excused of all the sin that he has committed because it was done in unbelief. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that no man is without excuse. We all are uh, aware of who God is, and uh, we are all condemned in our sin. Paul was indeed culpable for the sins he committed, and he calls himself the chiefest or the foremost of sinners, the first of sinners. Paul thought that his zeal for the law was actually honoring to God at one point, and that his persecution of the church was a noble thing. It wasn't. As terribly wrong as Paul was about this, 
He was not willfully sinning against God and disregarding what he knew to be the truth concerning Jesus Christ. He was blind to that. He was in unbelief concerning that. And so he wasn't doing this, we could say, in a high-handed kind of way. He really thought he was honoring God, though he was uh, very ignorant, uh, ignorantly doing that. And, uh, you know, Jesus Christ says the same thing concerning those who put him to death. In Luke 23, 34, we, uh, we see this um, where he says, you know, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. In one sense, they do, but in another sense, they do not. They don't understand the full extent of what they're doing, who they're persecuting, who they're putting to death. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. And so, although Paul, of course, is culpable for his sins, worthy of condemnation, he did all of this in unbelief, ignorantly in unbelief of who he was persecuting. Therefore, it's because of all of this, because all of this was done ignorantly in unbelief, that God would show him and could show him such mercy and grace as he did. The true nature of salvation is not law-keeping, as Paul clarifies, but it is the mercy of God, the mercy and grace of God. Paul uses here his own testimony then to correct the false teachers in Ephesus who are misusing the law. Paul's purpose then in sharing his testimony is to highlight that salvation is not obtained by the law, but by the grace and mercy of God. It is Paul's experience of obtaining mercy from God, despite his former behavior and conduct, that causes him to give thanks to God for enabling him and putting him into the ministry. Now, when we, Paul talks about this in verse, verses 12 to 14, talking about the enabling work that Christ did in him, the putting him into ministry, um, I believe Paul doesn't just have his ministry in mind, but also his conversion. Because as we look at Paul's conversion, it was really a twofold kind of thing. It was Paul turning to Christ, and at the same time, it was Christ enabling him and putting him into the ministry. So it was both a conversion and a commissioning, uh, kind of simultaneously, that we see happening in Acts chapter 9, uh, when Christ confronts him on the, uh, on the road to Damascus. And so when he talks about him, uh, Christ enabling him and putting him into the ministry, it's both a testimony of what Christ was doing with him, uh, how God was using him in the ministry, but also how God had converted him and brought him to the point of being uh, qualified and eligible for the ministry. The enablement or strengthening that Paul speaks of in verse 12 refers to the Lord's work of saving him and equipping him or strengthening him to serve in the ministry as an apostle of Christ Jesus. This enablement was not a self-enablement where Paul got to the point where, well, now he's ready to be used for ministry. You know, now he's gotten to the point where he understands. But rather, it is Christ who is enabling him, pointing him, showing him uh, his sin, and pointing him to the fact that he must believe in him, at Christ, as Lord. 
It is Christ who is doing the enabling. It is Christ who put him into the ministry. Paul says that the Lord enabled him because he found Paul faithful. We see this in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, strengthened him, uh, converted him, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Some have suggested that uh, Paul means that the Lord found him faithful or found him full of faith or having faith. And in one sense, that is true. Paul was full of faith at this point. You know, he believed in Christ. However, I believe that the faithful that is being referred to in this context refers to Paul's faithfulness in the ministry. Paul enabled him or strengthened him because he counted him or considered him faithful. In other words, the Lord strengthened and enabled Paul for the ministry because he knew Paul would be a trustworthy servant of the Lord. Now, typically when we refer to someone as being trustworthy, we are claiming that they have proven themselves trustworthy through their character and through their ministry. You know, we look upon a person and we know them personally. We've seen their character and their conduct. And we can say, yes, that is either a trustworthy person or not, or not based on their character and their conduct and the way they you know, hold themselves in ministry. However, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing here in, in 1 Timothy 1.12 because, um, as we said, Paul's conversion was also his commissioning into the ministry. And so we might look at the situation and say, well, how do we know Paul was going to be faithful? How do we know that you know, he was going to be trustworthy as a servant of the Lord? Well, let me say this. Um, the Lord can consider someone trustworthy before they prove themselves to be because he is the Lord. And he knows whether they will be faithful to the ministry he calls them to or not. The Lord is able to do something in this, in this kind of context that we cannot do. He can look at a person and say, yes, they will be faithful, and I will make them faithful to the ministry. And so on this basis, Paul then can say, the Lord enabled me because he considered me faithful. He looked down the quarters of time. He knew. He foreordained. He worked so that Paul would be a trustworthy servant of the Lord. The Lord prepared him in such a way so that he would be putting him into the ministry. But even the faithfulness that Paul exemplified in his ministry, you know, from his conversion up until now, was a result of the enabling work that the Lord did in him. He saved Paul. We saw that in Acts, we see that in Acts chapter 9. He gave Paul, revelation of the gospel, Galatians chapter 1.12, and he sustained Paul by his grace throughout all of his ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this. Uh, let me just turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is. Paul says this in chapter 15. He says in verse 9, 9 For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
He says in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So what Paul is saying is, you know, uh, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness in his ministry, the effect that his ministry had was not of himself, but it was by the grace of God that he was able to do what he is doing. Paul proved himself to be trustworthy and faithful, but it's uh, the Lord didn't have to see that happen in order to put him into the ministry because the Lord knew the kind of man that he would be, the kind of trustworthy servant he would be to the Lord. Paul obtained mercy from the Lord and experienced God's great grace and mercy. And in Paul's mind, it was grace given in an abundant amount. Perhaps as he looked at his life and he saw all the wickedness that he had done. In contrast, then, he, he recognized all the abundant grace that had to be shown to him in order to be saved. He says this in verse 14. And the grace of God, our Lord, was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Only in Paul's mind, the abundant grace of God could save a man who abundantly sinned and blasphemed and persecuted the one who saved him. God's grace worked in Paul along with giving him the gift of faith and love in Christ Jesus. God's grace operated in his life, and he gave Paul the faith to believe in Christ Jesus and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. This stands then in contrast to the kind of unbelief that Paul formerly had in Christ Jesus. He once acted ignorantly in unbelief, now he acts in faith and love in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's testimony does not only function as a means of clarifying the true nature of salvation, which is by grace, through faith, by the grace of mercy of God, which was shown towards Paul, but it also functions, his testimony also functions to demonstrate God's patience towards sinners. Look with me at uh, verses 15 and, and so on. This is a faithful saying, Paul writes, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, we see this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, phrasing in other uh, New Testament uh, letters and epistles in verse 15, where he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all accept acceptance. And then whatever comes after that is the thing which is worthy of acceptance and a faithful saying. And, and this kind of language of a faithful saying and something being worthy of all acceptance is would be something like this. There were common uh, doctrinal uh, phrases or statements which 
the church would have been familiar with at this time. It was like the key, the cardinal kind of doctrinal statements concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so Paul says this, you know, this is a faithful saying, meaning it's, it's, it's true and worthy of acceptance amongst all the believers. And all the believers accept it as, as that, as a faithful saying. And this is that faithful saying, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We believe that today. That is a, a, a kind of cardinal truth, a, a key doctrinal gospel truth. And we ought to remind one another of that often. It's a simple kind of idea, but a, a profound one. That Christ came to save sinners. In, in our context, we might you know, nod our heads agreeingly and say, yes, that's why Christ came. We know that. We accept that. We believe that. And that's good. But the fact is there are many out there that don't believe that. There are many that believe that Christ came not as the Son of God, not to save sinners. He came to simply set a, an example, to be a kind of moral figure. Uh, he came as a prophet, but not as, you know, Lord and King. Uh, he came, uh, as, as, you know, simply to be able to sympathize with us, you know, the divine God coming to sympathize, but not really acting on our behalf to save us. And so we must hold strong to the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world, the incarnate one, to save sinners. And Paul says this concerning this statement, I am the chief I am the foremost of the sinners which Christ came to save. Paul then goes on to say this, and this is the reason, Paul says, I obtained this mercy from the Lord. The reason the Lord chose to save me was to set a pattern or an example to all who will believe. To set an example of his Christ's patience towards sinners. Paul saw himself not as, um, you know, let me say it this way, often we look at Paul's conversion and say, and say something like, wow, what a miraculous thing. Look what God did, and an exceptional act that God did to save you know, the most vile of sinners and to use them in ministry, as if that's the exception. And what Paul's saying is, I'm not the exception. I'm here as the norm for how God operates. I am the pattern, not the exception, but the pattern, the example of God's patience towards all men. And so I think, you know, um, I think we need to maybe perhaps think more properly about that. That Paul's not just some exception out there but he is the foremost example of how God, through the, through the ages, operates in patience towards sinners. Paul saw himself as an example of how God can save even the worst of sinners. You might be sitting out here this evening or watching online and say something like, God could never save me. Why would God save me? Does he know what I've done? Does he see the things I've done, the way I've acted, the way I've blasphemed him? 
Yes, he has. He has seen all of that. But yet God in his patience, his long-suffering, like he was with the people of Israel for such a long time, patient, calling them time and time again to repentance, to believe in him, to follow after him. That same God is also patient toward all sinners. And Paul sees himself as the prime example of that. If God can save and enable one like himself for service, he can save and enable you for service too. And I purposely add that, the enabling part. He has not only saved you, but he has, through your salvation, enabled you for service. Now, God has not obviously called you to the specific role of uh, being an apostle of Christ Jesus, like he called Paul to, but he has strengthened you. He has enabled you, and in some way, he has put you into the ministry. Whatever that looks like, whatever role that is, he has both saved you and he has enabled you like he did Paul. And don't let your mind or your thoughts say anything different. Recognize the work, the mercy, the grace of God at work in you and in turn serve him in humility as Paul did. As a means of application, though, as well, I believe Paul's testimony exemplifies the proper response to God's mercy and grace. First, by this, Paul gives thanks and shows reverence towards God's work. We saw that in verse 12. Paul, a recipient of the mercy and grace of God, says this, I give thanks. I give thanks. To who? To Christ Jesus, our Lord. The proper response of anyone who has received God's grace and mercy should be to give thanks. It should be to testify of the work of the Lord in a thankful heart. We also see another proper response in this testimony of Paul, and that is uh, at the end of Uh, verse 15, which Paul says concerning Christ coming to the world to save sinners. He says, of of whom I am chief. Notice Paul doesn't say, of whom I was chief, but of whom I am chief of sinners. What humility. Paul, you know, Paul was not like his former self at all. But yet he still recognized the weight of his sin and how he still was a sinner. What humility concerning oneself. We have experienced, I hope, all of you this evening, experienced God's grace and mercy. And yet we should keep the same humble attitude as Paul did, recognize, recognizing the sin that still remains in us that we must be confessing, repenting of, looking to the Lord to help cleanse us from.
God, God loves to use those kind of servants who are humble, even in their ministry. Finally, not only should it cause us a proper response to God's mercy and grace, be a heart of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, and also being humble in our service to the Lord, humble concerning our own sin, but also it should cause us to do nothing else but to give glory to God, to extend and offer our praise to God for his grace and mercy. And Paul does this in verse 17 as he concludes his testimony. He says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a capstone to Paul's testimony of God's grace and mercy in his life. As he demonstrated the true nature of salvation, that salvation is not of the law, but of God's grace and mercy, the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Also, proclaiming and demonstrating that God's patience is toward all sinners. If it can be toward one like Paul, it can, his, God's patience is is truly towards all sinners. He then ends it with this capstone of, what else can I do? What else can I say? But honor and glory be to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise. Indeed, he is eternal. He is immortal, invisible. He alone is wise, Only he can save. And we must give thanks for that. Proclaim the wonderful news of God's grace and mercy. And so I encourage and remind you this evening, again, whether you're here in person or watching this now or live or sometime down the road, remember this. If God can save the worst of sinners, he can save you too. There is no person who is out of God's reach. His mercy is endless, extends, his grace is offered freely to all who believe. Salvation is offered to anyone who puts their faith in Christ alone. Might you use, I encourage you this week or weeks ahead, to use your testimony to help clarify, perhaps for some, the true nature of salvation. Perhaps it's the one who's caught in a works-based faith. Use your testimony to clarify the true nature of salvation. Use your testimony to demonstrate the patience of God towards the least of us. And use your testimony to proclaim that God is eternal immortal, invisible. He alone is God, wise, and he alone is worthy of all honor and glory. No one else but God alone. Let us pray this evening as we close. Heavenly Father,
May you use the message of your word by your spirit strength to remind us that it is you who has saved us and enabled us for service. Lord, may we have the humble attitude of Paul who saw himself as the chief, the foremost of sinners. Lord, what a demonstration of someone who has truly understood the mercy and grace of God to say something like that. And may that be our testimony as well. Lord, bless us as we go this week. May you guide us. May you use us in the testimony of your work in our hearts to point others to Christ, to point them away from any false doctrine or teaching, understanding or misunderstanding of your word, and point them to Christ, the one who causes us to be saved, the one who has saved us, the one who uh, we obtain mercy from, and him alone we pray in Christ's name. Amen.